Welcome to the next edition of the InfoQ podcast. My name is Wes Rice, and I'm the chair of the QCon software conferences produced by InfoQ. Today, I'm chatting with Peter Bergon. Today, we're talking about things like gossip, Paxos, CRDTs. Then we go on and talk about Go. We talk a bit about the work that he's doing with the Go package manager and a product or a package that he maintains called GoKit. Peter, welcome to the InfoQ podcast. Hi. So most recently, you were an engineer with Weaveworks. That's right. Can you tell us a bit about some of the projects you're working on there? Yeah, I joined Weaveworks um, to uh, initially work on developing what was known as WeaveScope, which is a sort of network uh, mapping and monitoring, kind of an, an infrastructure, almost an APM solution. Um, it had kind of a unique take on things. It would kind of detect automatically um, connections between processes and containers and pods and hosts and build up this kind of, um, I guess, so like a directed graph or, or like a map almost of, um, of your infrastructure and kind of keep it updated over time. And then between each of these nodes, on all the nodes and vertices, you could hang metadata like um, the CPU load or the memory load or um, the bandwidth or, you know, things like this. And so it was this really interesting and, and still is this really interesting um, way of getting a bit of insight into your running infrastructure. I, as I guess everyone knows, like infrastructures are getting more and more complex. It's harder and harder to keep everything in your head. The sort of diagram that you draw on the whiteboard when a, when a new employee joins your company, it's like out of date as soon as you're done drawing the final box or line on the thing. And uh, most recently, I was working on WeFlux, which is a really early stage product um, dealing with change management. So when you're deploying code, um, what does that look like? How do you actually do it? Uh, you're going to push some commits to GitHub or whatever, and then what happens next? And that's actually quite a complex question. Uh, so we've come up with a set of solutions that might be useful to you. Um, automate as much of as, um, as much of it as possible. Uh, make it clear what's happening, give you the control you need when you need it, and otherwise kind of um, get get things out of your way so you can uh, focus your energy on shipping things to customers and doing productive business value stuff. So yeah, that's that's what I've been working on um, at Weave mostly. Now, you also worked on something called Weave Mesh, right? Exactly, exactly. So that's actually a, an interesting uh, sort of like a, a infrastructural library or like a mid-tier project. Weave Mesh is what we call it a, a gossip and CRDT, uh, almost like a framework or like an intermediary library. Uh, and it's useful for building distributed applications. And we actually extracted it from WeaveNet. So it, it actually powers WeaveNet, this SDN that's kind of been uh, in the market for, I guess, three or four years now. It's it's one of the oldest uh, sort of container SDNs around. So we, we extracted from there and we kind of generalized it and made it useful. And um, yeah, so I was maintaining that for a while. Uh, I did some extensions with it. I gave a talk about it. And um, uh, yeah, it uh, sort of evangelized it in a, in a few circles. Yeah, you did a really good talk at uh, QCon London earlier, I guess, last year in, in uh, the previous QCon London that was about Mesh. And in it, you talked a bit about gossip and you talked about CRDT. So I, I thought we might start off there and and talk a bit about it. Yeah, certainly. So let's just start off with, with the basics and like gossip. So what is gossip? What's it used for? And why do developers really need to be focused or, or at least have awareness of what gossip is. Yeah. So for me, the question is always, um, 
gossip is an answer to um, questions of communication. How do you communicate between uh, nodes or instances or, or things on a network? And there's lots of like styles, like messaging patterns. Um, there's sort of peer-to-peer -peer where you make a direct connection between two things and you exchange messages and there's like request response, there's publish subscribe, that sort of stuff. Uh, most developers are kind of familiar with that, those with those idioms. Gossip is another class of, of pattern altogether where uh, communicating nodes kind of with best effort semantics um, send information uh, to each other. And there's it, under the umbrella of gossip, there's a number of different um, ways you can do it. The way that most people are familiar with is probably something called rumor gossip. That's where a piece of information, think, I don't know, like a mutation or like a, a, someone does an HTTP post to, to one node in a network and you want to kind of communicate that outwards to all the nodes in the network. Um, rumor gossip is the method of doing that. So. Um, you tell the first node and the first node tells two other nodes and those two other nodes tell two other nodes and you get kind of this exponential growth and, and, the, and the information kind of propagates outward. Uh, that's the most popular form of gossip and uh, there are other forms. There's like uh, aggregate gossip and I kind of go into details on the talk. I won't get into too many details here. You know, I, I guess it's really important as we talk about this to kind of set the context. When we're talking about gossip, we're really talking about distributed systems, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, we 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 hit the limits uh, some time ago of like Moore's law and and uh, uh, the the amount of work we can do in a single like physical node. So when we want to scale to to warehouse scale computation or global scale computation, we have to deal with these physical limits. We have to talk about how we do communication um, across unreliable links between unreliable machines and still have some kind of reliable or 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 like coherent programming model in the large. Yeah. And so that's what gossip is kind of talking about. The other thing that you hear about when you, you talk gossip is it's opposed like Paxos. Can you uh, talk a bit about what's Paxos in relationship to gossip? Yeah. So gossip is a way of communicating between nodes that's fundamentally, uh, let's say, unreliable, or maybe a better way to say it is best effort. You're trying to get this information out to other nodes, but if it fails, you know, you kind of accept that somehow. And so um, you have to accommodate that restriction or that constraint at a sort of higher level in your application domain, for example, you have to say, well, it may be that this information doesn't get to all the nodes at the same time. So I have to like figure out ways to deal with that. Paxos is an algorithm in a class of algorithms that um, I don't, many of the listeners probably have heard of uh, the CAP theorem, CAP. Paxos is a member of highly consistent consensus algorithms, uh, so-called CP algorithms. And uh, gossip is sort of on the other side of the spectrum. It's uh, more available AP. Uh, it's an AP protocol or uh, algorithm. So um, the fundamental difference, I suppose, is um, what happens in the case of failure, what happens in the case of uh, a network partition. And that doesn't necessarily mean that a uh, someone uh, drove a, a backhoe through a cable under the ground, it can mean that uh, maybe the GC in a Java process is taking too long and it's not responding to um, to network packets quick enough. Or maybe, you know, the, the, the system has crashed or you have a noisy neighbor in a, in a cloud computing environment or something and you can't respond as quickly as you like. So what happens when this, uh, what happens in your system when this failure happens? In AP, uh, in gossip, 
you still make what's known as forward progress. You still kind of are allowed to proceed. Now, you may have stale information. It may be out of date, but you can still kind of operate with that and, uh, and, and do something. In Paxos and CP systems, whenever you have this sort of failure, um, you have to kind of stop. You stop accepting requests. You stop processing information. And you just sort of return failures to all of your clients. And um, that can be what you want sometimes. If you need uh, highly reliable information, if you're dealing with, uh, I don't know, um, health insurance information or, or like bank balances, you want in the presence of failure, you want to say, hang on, something's not right. But um, that's often not what you want when you're building, I don't know, a website. Um, if you're doing something that isn't quite so uh, important or that can tolerate failure a little bit better, um, gossip or, or AP systems like Cassandra, for example, may be more what you're looking for. All right. So, so with gossip and with Paxos, we're talking, you know, communication. So the other side of that, or the other piece of that, at least in this talk that uh, you gave yeah. that I'm referring to, was about CRDTs, conflict-free replicated data types. Yeah. Can you touch a bit about that? Yeah. So, so far we've been talking about uh, how nodes talk to each other in a uh, failure-prone network, let's say. Uh, and that's sort of, as I explained in the talk, that's sort of the communication domain. But there's another interesting thing to think about, which is the actual data that gets communicated. And I call that the information domain. And so CRDTs are kind of a class of solution to uh, data-related problems. And I think they're probably the most elegant solution that we have at the moment uh, to, to accommodate the sorts of failures that are inevitable in, um, in, the, in the networks and the network systems that we build today. So CRDTs um, are data types like, I don't know, a linked list or a map or a set. They're, they're a way to implement these data types that can accommodate failure in communication. What do I mean by that? Well, let's say you have a, uh, a set, so like a map, or if you're a PHP programmer, it's like, what, it, what do they call it in PHP? Like a, like a hash array or something like this? Uh, unfortunately, PHP is not one of my main languages. Oh, okay. What it, what it, how, do, how do Java programmers call like a, a map? It's a set. Okay, a set. A set or a map. Yeah, sure. So you've got a, a set of uh, strings, let's say. And um, the set is going to be too big to fit in memory on a single node. So you have to kind of maybe share it, let's say. So um, whenever you add something to the set, you have to share that information with other nodes in your little network. And so you have to send a message to other nodes in the network. What happens when that, when that message fails? Um, is the set inconsistent? Do you like stop accepting requests until you can get the message through? I mean, these are things we have to think about in broader um, in broader networks. So CRDTs give us a kind of a rigorous set of rules and of uh, sort of uh, ways to accommodate message failure that in the end uh, eventually result in a consistent system, eventually result in a set that makes sense, that's coherent. And you have to kind of accommodate some weirdness the application layer, you can't just treat it like a plain old set. You have to kind of uh, look at it through a funny lens. But if you do that, then you can uh, distribute it kind of very efficiently across a lot of different nodes. And so CRDTs, uh, th there's not just sets, there's all sorts of uh, data types that have CRDT implementations. And um, if, if you can kind of bend your application to fit inside of the CRDT semantics, then you get a lot of really nice stuff out of it. And that's the way I like to think about CRDTs. 
before WeaveWorks, you were with SoundCloud. So you were doing similar work with CRATs there, right? Yeah, that's actually where I got turned on to the idea. Um, I was on a team called the Activities Team, and we kind of uh, owned a, a piece of the infrastructure that was um, responsible for all of the event feeds on the website. So an event feed is sort of like a Twitter stream or a Facebook feed. It's just anything that has stuff that occurs in some sort of time order. Uh, and so for a long time, that was based on, I don't know, some some previous technology, and, and we were kind of hitting the limits of that system design. So uh, our task was to kind of build the next version of that system and kind of plan for, you know, two orders of magnitude growth, which is kind of what you do in companies like that. So uh, yeah. me and a, a colleague, um, Tomas Sennart, initially uh, started designing the system, and trying to figure out how we were going to do it. And we stumbled into what turned out to be our CRDT, but this was back in like 2012. It wasn't so popular. We had to kind of discover uh, that what we were building was actually a CRDT. And then it was like, aha, oh, yeah. um, this is what we're doing. So we kind of reified the design a little bit and, and started using academic language and, and reading the papers and stuff. And so we built this system. Uh, it's open source. It's called Roshi. I think you can still get to it. Soundcloud.com slash Roshi. You can. I looked it up this morning. Yep. Uh, so that is a CRDT system for timestamped events. And uh, for a long time, it powered the uh, SoundCloud stream and the activity feeds and a number of other like major product features. It was in the hot path whenever you went to SoundCloud.com and you like looked at your stream of tracks or whatever. Uh, you were getting data directly from Roshi. All right, I'd like to shift gears just a bit. So, so far we've been talking about Gossip and Paxos and CRDTs, but um, I'd like to shift over into Go. So you've been pretty active in the Go community. You've done work, maintain a library called GoKit. You've um, been working on package manager and a few other things. I'd like to kind of explore the work that you're doing there. Yeah, certainly. Let's start with just the basics. First is what is Go and what is kind of the core problem set that Go does a really good job of solving. Go is a uh, statically typed, compiled uh, language that makes a number of uh, very often surprising trade-offs um, in deference to programming in the large. And what do I mean by that? I mean programming by a team of software engineers, um, probably a larger team rather than a smaller team, uh, who are kind of building and evolving products and, and services and probably probably like network servers. That's kind of what it's designed to, to be written for um, over a period of time uh, with, a, with a focus on maintainability. And I think the key thing to keep in mind when you're looking at a Go code base or when you're trying to learn Go is that Go code is designed to be read. And um, what that means is that it, when you when you look at it, Go is often said to be simple. I actually read this really interesting post on uh, this website called Lobsters the other day. A lot of language communities like to say that they like value simplicity, right? Simplicity is like the number one thing. And this is a, a post by someone by the name of Pion. And he says, perhaps it's a matter of clarifying what um, simplicity actually means. You have to explain what they mean to you because they almost certainly mean something different to somebody else. For example, for a Go user, and I, and I agree with this, simplicity means that the operational interpretation of a program fragment is unique, straightforward, and never in question after you've read the code. And that means when you're looking at Go code, like on GitHub or on the page, 
you can read it and you can say, I know exactly what the computer is going to do when it executes this code. I know yeah. probably what the assembly is, what the machine code is going to be. And the poster goes on to say, from this no-nonsense point of view, higher order functions are already suspicious and fancy stuff like closures, transducers, or Haskell's lenses or traversals are abominations. And I wouldn't quite use that language, but I totally agree that um, these like higher order constructs are definitely suspicious and definitely not simple through the eyes of a Go programmer. Conversely, um, for a closure user, he says that simplicity means, uh, big words here, ontological parsimony. And by that he means that like um, the number, uh, he, he, he wants to say uh, data abstraction is undesirable because it grows the number of kinds of things that exist in your program. So for closure programmers, they're, they're thinking kind of more in the, in the data domain and they wanna constrain the set of possible things that can exist kind of is intuitive to me. So for me, and I'm sorry, this is quite a long answer to your question. <laughs> um, Go is a, is a programming language that really values simplicity in the sense of looking at the code, knowing what it does, and not being fooled by magic or by um, hidden abstraction um, compared to Ruby, for example, where magic is kind of the order of the day. Yeah, sure. Compared to... Uh, closure or Haskell. Yeah, exactly. You said another thing that, that kind of stood out to me, and that was about large teams. Uh, yeah. Specifically about how the language itself lends itself for working with large teams. How can a language really lend itself for um, helping with things like engineering velocity? What, what does the language itself do to enable that? I think it's all about thinking about who's consuming the code that you're writing. And I think we can kind of turn back to kind of the old days, you know, the the, the BOFH, um, sysadmin, like battle-hardened, gray-beard kind of people who would write a lot of Perl, let's say. And for them, they would be very excited when they could write this really terse program that was like really efficient and solved, you know, this really specific problem in a, in a really like clever way. And they'd be really like happy about that and proud about that. With as few characters as possible, right? Exactly, exactly. And like, I guess Perl got a sort of a reputation as being line noise or something like this. Often when you would read a Perl program, be like, what are all these characters? Like, like there's no way to interpret what this means. But uh, conversely, Go kind of um, says, well, like when you write the code that costs you, I don't know, an hour, let's say. But for every hour you spend writing code, on the, on the tail end of that, in the lifetime of that program, of that source file in your repository, there's going to be 10 hours or 100 hours worth of people reading it. Sure. And we should acknowledge that as, as like professional software engineers. We should acknowledge that up front. And we should, we should not only like be aware of that, but we should optimize for that long tail of readers. And we should make their lives easier versus making the programmers like the, 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 almost the typists life easier. And so I think that's what that means. It, 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 it's, it's, uh, programming is in, in Go is almost a little bit frustrating because you're in a certain sort of mindset when you're programming. You're like, ah, oh, I'm the king of this mountain. I know exactly what I'm doing um, in programming in general, I suppose. Like I'm, I'm so clever. I know exactly what all my abstractions are. Uh, uh, like just get out of my way. I, I want to be as clever as I possibly can be. But when you're writing in Go, it kind of gets in your way of that. It forces you to kind of slow down a little bit. It forces you to plan things out ahead. It forces you to write all of the error paths uh, up front. At least it likes to be written in that way. It forces you to spell out all of your 
um, maps and filters with like plain for loops. And when you're writing it, you're like, oh, this is so frustrating. Why do I have to type if error not equal to nil all over, all over the place? But then you come back to this code base, even you like two or three or six months later or other teammates when they're getting up to speed and they're like, oh, okay, you know, like this is a bit verbose, no doubt, but I see exactly what's happening. I see exactly how this algorithm is implemented. Um, I understand this code. And there's all sorts of tooling that goes into building this reputation as well. Like we're all probably familiar with GoFumpt, the, the formatter. There's like one canonical way to um, format Go code and it's like mechanically enforced. And uh, it's nobody's favorite. Like nobody likes putting, um, for example, the brace, the opening curly brace has to go on the same line as the if statement. Like legitimately programs won't compile if you put it on the next line. And, and like a lot of people that chafes them, obviously, it's not their style, it's not how they like to do things. But if every Go program you ever read ever is, uh, is like formatted in the same way, then you don't waste brain cycles trying to like figure that stuff out. And that sort of philosophy is echoed throughout the programming language, I think. Interesting, that's very cool. So there's a couple other things about Go that have stood out for me. And one is control over memory and another is, it seems like concurrency yeah. is kind of baked right in. Could you talk a bit about how uh, Go has this kind of system level programming control over memory? Yeah, and this was maybe a mistake early on in the evolution of Go. They called it a systems programming language, but it turns out lots of people have different definitions of <laughs> what that is exactly. Um, yeah, Go is closer to C than Java in the sense that it allows you to lay out memory uh, very precisely in terms of like like struct layout. Um, and so this is actually quite useful, especially for lower level, um, lower level, closer to the hardware programming when you want to optimize cache lines in your CPU. So you, you can do that. You can you can do that in Go. It's not quite as elegant as in Rust, for example. Rust is even lower level, yeah. but um, you, you can do a little bit of work there. One of the only complaints, I guess, I've really heard about Go, one of the strong complaints I've heard about Go, hmm. is kind of in the space of um, package management or dependency management. And I know you've been a bit involved with that. Oh, yes. can, you, can you give us a kind of a recap of, I, I guess, the history, the legacy of package management with, with Go and, and where it's going? It's, it's about to change quite a bit in the next few months or next 12 months or so, right? I, I certainly hope so, yeah. So to understand the history, I guess you have to understand where Go came from, and that is Google, right? And as we all know now, Google has this uh, this monorepo where every bit of code that they compile for any of their um, programs, it comes from a single repo. And that means that um, they kind of have this absolute control over stuff. And if you need to make a change in a library, then what you do is like conceptually at a high level, you, you make a PR where you change the library and then you change all of the callers of that library, right? And you have that ability. Right. It's all this single monorepo. And from this like universe, from this mindset um, came Go. And in Go, in the beginning, um, the idea of dependencies or of like package management was was quite simple. We had this thing called GoGet, and GoGet allowed you to fetch a library from a remote source, like GitHub.com/Peter/MyLib or something like this. And uh, that was great. It was very easy. You could just go get something, and then then it would be there, and then you could use it. What this didn't let you do was specify, so you could specify what I like to say, the, the, the position in space. You could name the library and say, I want this library, but you couldn't specify the position in time. You couldn't specify a version. You would just end up getting whatever happened to be uh, in the master branch at the time you executed go get. And um, you know this kind of worked for a long time, especially since Go was such a young uh, kind of ecosystem. 
And the people who were in it in the beginning were kind of well-behaved and tended not to break APIs. So people were generally happy for a little while. And then people started building much bigger systems like uh, Docker and Kubernetes, and people started breaking their APIs. And what used to be a kind of painless experience became quite difficult. And obviously, people want to be able to specify versions when they're building Kubernetes, and they depend on, I don't know, Joe's logger library. they want to be able to say, I, I, I want version one and version one has this API and blah, blah, blah. And for a long time, the, the, the core maintainers uh, of Go kind of didn't quite. And here I'm getting into my opinion here. So, um, you know, this might not be totally accurate, but they didn't quite understand the needs of open source communities because they were living in this sort of monorepo space. And so, in my opinion, they kind of what, what they said was, you know, the community will figure this out if, if there's a, a good solution that will emerge from the users then uh, assuming it gets you know appropriate adoption and it, and it seems coherent and sane we we may bless it in the future but what happened in reality was a whole bunch of people tried to solve this problem kind of independently with their own idea of um, I don't know what what is it in Ruby like like rake files and manifests and locks and kind of everybody yeah. created their own standard in a sense and um, it kind of quickly became this um, this 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 heterogeneous set of, of, of possible ways to manage packages. And it, and it was a mess because the whole strength of, um, uh, the, the, the strongest thing about a, a good package management ecosystem as languages like rust have taught us. And, and to some degree node, I suppose, um, is, is having a standard allows you to interoperate properly. So we didn't have a standard for a long time. This is really interesting to me. Specifically, it's interesting because of Java 9's Jigsaw. Jigsaw is the new module system that's led to a really significant rewrite of the Java SDK. Mm. At least in my understanding, rather than suggesting a solution to the versioning problem, the kind of the problem you just described, the problem's being left up to the community to solve with build tools in the container. Uh oh. Yeah, so that makes me nervous. As you say, not, not having a standard dredges up memories of jar hell to me. I, I know that we have the class path, and I know all the modules will be on that class path for the current SDK, but crazy things can and do occur. Yeah, like uh, w- without some kind of standard, not, not necessarily a standard about what the packages are or, or even like necessarily how what what the ux is how to how to how to um specify stuff but you need some kind of standard to 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 say uh i'm using this version of that you know i guess though to be completely fair that uh, the module system with java was a, a big change it required a lot of rewrite a lot of things had to kind of um be undone and put back together so I think the idea was uh, to kind of punt with it for now, let the community solve it so it didn't delay Java 9 any longer than that was already going to be delayed for the rewrite. Yeah, and, and that's that's like a really good point to raise. Like if um, the core Go team had decided to try to solve package management in the early days, um, it's a hard problem. And I'm not saying like, I'm not saying that just because I'm deep in it and like I'm kind of exhausted by it, although that those things are true. But it's 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 like a legitimately hard problem, and there are things there there are sub problems that don't have correct solutions. There's only like least bad solutions, and yeah. you can look at um, there's a recent blog article by Russ Cox about SAT solvers, and a much longer uh, blog article by um, a guy I'm working with quite closely on this whole thing, Sam Boyer, about you know I think he called it. So you want to build a package manager? It's this uh, 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 piece on Medium. 
And if, you know how on uh, on Medium they tell you how long it's going to take to read at the top of every article? It says like, you know, like 10 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Uh, in Sam's article, it says 56 minutes or something like this. <laughs> it's like a 75-page article about dependency management. It's incredibly interesting and, and well-written. So if you're interested, you should at least give it a skim. Wow, that's crazy. But yeah, it's, it's a hard problem, definitely. All right, so that's kind of the status quo. That's where we are. But mm. but you've been working with some folks to kind of work on that, right? Fix that. Yeah, well, well, remains to be seen if it'll be fixed. But um, <laughs> hopefully, fix it. Hopefully, fixed exactly. So at some point, I guess about a year ago, uh, the core team realized or, or like started to acknowledge that they'd been kind of kicking the can down the road for long enough and that we needed something proper. And so they convened at the at the last GopherCon, I guess last summer, they convened a little uh, workshop. And they got the community together there. Unfortunately, I wasn't there, but they got the community get together with like uh, Rob Pike and a few other people, and they like had a little community powwow. And they said, "Okay, what what's going on? What should we do? How, let's let's kind of try to think about how to fix this." Um, and there was some good discussion, and um, it spiraled a little bit in the weeks after that. And I guess like at this point, I had built up enough political capital in uh, the Go community. That and I was kind of frustrated enough. I had coworkers who were kind of almost dismissing the language as a whole because how of how like ridiculous the situation was. I, I kind of got fed up and I was just like, look, uh, I will do what I can to get us a proper solution. I don't have the technical chops for this. This is hard enough that I certainly can't build something, build the answer, but. I feel like I can probably spend some political capital and and um, get some people together that will be able to do it. So yeah. I kind of uh, took the mantle. I I, I, I gathered some um, prominent uh, gophers, some developers, some people who have had uh, experience in this um, over the lifetime of the Go ecosystem, and I put together uh, a little committee of folks who uh, are going to who are who are currently working on what I hope will be the blessed solution. So uh, it's kind of like all the um, insight we gain from all of the heterogeneous um, point solutions. Um, if you're familiar at all with the Go ecosystem, there's uh, tools like Glide, GoVendor, uh, GoDep, um, GB, a uh, number of other ones that I'm sure I'm forgetting. And um, so I, 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 I gathered all of their uh, brilliant minds and I said, let's do something proper. Let's have a standard. Let's come together and build something designed to be a standard and let's kind of put this chapter of uh, the, the go, this, this sort of fiasco behind us by like agreeing on a standard. So that's what we're doing right now. Um, we are being very methodical about it. We made all sorts of design docs, user stories. Uh, we mapped out the design space. We uh, solicited feedback from the community. We have like an advisory committee. We have the implementation committee. Um, it's all going quite well. In the next few days, we're going to open source or, or open up uh, the prototype we've been building, which is in a you know kind of alpha state right now. And then hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll have it in uh, in a prototype way for the Go 1.9 release, which is uh, uh, a few months away at this point. So um, very cool. Yeah, Go 1.9. We'll see something hopefully uh, sort of in a, in a primitive space, and then uh, whatever comes next, we'll we'll see a a, a proper kind of blessed solution if all goes well so what's the ask for the people that are listening is there anything that uh that you need people to do to help with um at this point it's a little premature when this thing gets kind of opened up uh, i would really appreciate anyone who's interested to provide their feedback um 
that can take the form of trying the tool out on your own repos and, and giving us kind of bug, bug reports and that sort of thing. It can take the form of uh, taking a look at like the help output and taking a look at the surface area of the thing and, and, and the expected sort of UX, the user experience, and, um, and seeing how that feels to you and seeing what, what feels good and what feels bad and um, just, just giving us feedback. And actually, I, I would ask anyone, if you're really interested, just email me directly or find me on the Gopher Slack or you know, just reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, I'm super, super happy to take any feedback you care to give. Um, that's what I'm here for. I'm not really on the committee, so to speak. I'm just kind of managing uh, communications and PR and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, that's what I'm here for. And, and if you're interested, reach, please, please do reach out. Cool. So one, one of the things that uh, when you look at languages, or at least when I look at languages, I'm always curious about the ecosystem. I want to know how rich it is, how big it is. Go's got a, a huge, rich ecosystem, right? Um, yeah, I guess it depends on your perspective. I like to think so. Um, <laughs> well, you're involved with one GoKit, right? So Absolutely, yeah. So, so what does GoKit do? GoKit was my answer to um, organizations and and. Originally, I meant larger companies, but now that's kind of scaled down to sort of any sort of company who's hopping on the microservice architecture um, train and who needs uh, a bit of structure, guidance, tooling, help uh, to build this out using Go. And um, I guess my main sort of inspiration for this is Finagle which was uh, in some sense a toolkit in Scala that um, solved a lot of microservice concerns uh, for Twitter. And yeah. there, was, there was no analog in Go for a long time, so I kind of want to build the analog there. And basically, I want to give organizations and, and engineers in, in organizations the ammunition they need to choose Go as an implementation language for, for their business domain microservices. So that's that's my goal. So Finagle is kind of a RPC framework for building a distributed system. It's not really like for a microservice. It's for communication between services. Mm-hmm. It's a larger thing. So GoKit's the same. GoKit is solving hopefully most or all of the same problems that Finagle solves. And here we're talking about things like circuit breakers and client side load balancers yeah. and you know that sort of stuff. Uh, but it's also uh, and the way I've been pushing it, especially lately, has has been a, a way to think about how to write Go microservices. And here I'm drawing a lot of inspiration from domain-driven design principles, um, stuff that should be very familiar to uh, Java programmers, ways of structuring um, um, dependency injection and, and like component models and avoiding global states and um, how, to, how to wire stuff together and how to abstract um, the transport from uh, middlewares from the business logic, from all these kind of different concerns and applying uh, good software engineering like the Liskov substitution principle and solid design and hexagonal architecture, all this stuff. It's, it's, it's really like a way of structuring your, your microservice in a way that allows it to um, be maintained and, and, and grow with grace. That's how I like to think of it. With GoKit, obviously, it addresses a bit of the microservice space. Yeah. Um, but microservices are, you know, you're building a huge distributed system when you're building microservices. There's all kinds of things that you need to deal with, tracing and logging and, and um, just being able to orchestrate the services to keep them running. Exactly. What, um, what are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, so, I mean, we've had this blossoming of, of uh, cluster managers like Kubernetes and DCOS and, and uh, ECS and all this stuff. 
and we've had this like uh, blossoming of um, of monitoring and, and instrumentation tooling like Datadog and Prometheus is like the one I like the most. It's this lovely open source uh, instrumentation and metric server. And uh, now we have like open tracing, which is a standard for distributed tracing and all these implementations like Zipkin and Lightstep and AppDash. And, um, but uh, we've also had uh, like uh, quite a curious journey in the world of logging as far as I'm concerned. I'm curious, like what do you, what do you use for logging if you're building a sort of an SOA or microservice architecture you probably like turn to Elasticsearch, i suppose yeah Elasticsearch, and in uh in the role that i'm in now so i'm not i'm not building a lot of systems in the past we were just using uh syslogs where we were kind of pulling everything together um i hear a lot if i was building a system today i think i would probably start with um looking at prometheus i've heard a lot of really cool things about mm. that you mentioned zipkin earlier um Z i've heard a lot of great things about some of the um, insights that Zipkin's able to give you on a running system. So, so that um, would probably be a, a tracing framework that I'd look at. Totally, um, totally. It's it's all in the umbrella of uh, observability, right? Like yeah, you're sure. building this distributed system, and you need to get some insight into what's actually going on. Right. And um, yeah, like my my intuition about logging is that it's kind of in a dark age in a way, like. Syslog is something you mentioned, and I guess a lot of people use that to uh, manage the logs for servers, right? But in the in the era of Kubernetes of, what is it, like cattle, not pets, or whatever they say, like servers are kind of an outmoded concept. Like you have workloads, you have jobs that you kind of schedule onto this um, homogenous set of, of compute resources. And so logging becomes this other thing where it's like logs of streams in the 12 factor style it's logs are streams of data coming out of like services that are running somewhere and and like how do you manage that and and we have all these tools we have like um i guess fluentd is a big one um in in the elastic world there's uh log stash and um yep. i guess uh, log beats and 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 like these are these are kind of like point solutions they're they're forwarding logs somewhere but they're not end-to-end -end solutions like Prometheus is. You still need to get them into Elasticsearch, for example. Um, but Elasticsearch was like built to be this, uh, it's, it's built on Lucene, right? And Lucene is this uh, document search thing. Yep. It's like it's like TF-IDF and, and like full text search. And like, it's definitely got a ton of features and it's been growing into the, into the like cluster logging space. But I'm kind of not convinced that it's, um, the perfect solution for this problem. And at least everyone I know, or almost everyone I know who's running Elasticsearch in this, in this role and at scale, they're all quite like frustrated at um, kind of the operational side of, of keeping Elasticsearch kind of healthy and happy. Uh, so I'm really like in the last month or two, I guess, and especially as I've been giving workshops about Go and, and GoKit and microservice architectures, I, 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 I'm really hungry for a different answer here, something that's more in tune with um, like microservice containerized workloads, something that's less heavy and less complex than Elasticsearch and yet still like addressing these core kind of um, cloud native logging concerns and end-to-end -end system. Yeah, I don't think you're the only one. We actually at QCon London this year, the one that's coming up in March, we're running an observability track where we're dealing with some of these questions. So, oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, it's yeah. like a huge, huge question. And, and when you build these big microservice architectures, you need answers to this sort of thing because you're opting yeah. into quite a lot of complexity. You have to be able to recreate that path of failure that occurred. Exactly, exactly. 
So this is where my mind's been recently. I'd, I'd, I'd love if anyone is interested in this sort of thing to reach out to me on Twitter or something and we can have some conversations because I think I think we're kind of missing the mark right now and I think there's a much better class of solutions kind of hidden from view somewhere. Wow, Peter, we've talked a bit about just about everything from Gossip and Paxo, CRDTs to Go Package Managers. It was an awesome discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Mm-hmm.